Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Hillel Presser. Hillel is an attorney who represents individuals and businesses in connection with the establishment of comprehensive asset protection plans. He's been featured in numerous newspapers and magazines and has authored several books and articles on asset protection law. Today, he is a guest on the Financial Flossing Podcast. Hillel, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, as I told you before we press record, I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff, so I could talk about it all day long. But let's set the table and give me kind of a brief overview of what you do and then kind of dispel the common myth that it's for ultra high net worth people and who should be talking to people like you. Absolutely. So what I do is we have a nationwide law practice that focuses solely on asset protection. And uh, we do both domestic and international asset protection. And what asset protection is is essentially it's the legal process of titling both your personal and business assets to put them beyond the reach of future potential threats, creditors, and liabilities, while simultaneously still enjoying those assets. So in layman's terms, we want to make it so difficult, so expensive, if not impossible, for anybody to collect against you that they don't want to sue you in the first place. And if they do sue you, we want to be able to settle your case for five, ten, 15 cents on the dollar. So essentially, everybody works so hard their whole life, and whether it's to retire, live a better life, give their kids the things that they didn't have, what they fail to realize is all they're thinking about is growth. And you know what you have to focus on is conservation of wealth, because unfortunately, one lawsuit, one divorce, one car accident, one slip and fall, one breach of contract can literally take away everything that you've worked your entire life to build. So just as it's important to make money, probably even more important is to keep it. And you know, a lot of people think that asset protection is only for the ultra wealthy. And the short answer is no. Everybody needs asset protection. Now, obviously not to the same degree. You know, we've represented probably, I don't know, 30, 40 professional athletes, celebrities, and you know, take an NFL player who signs a contract for $40 million. Well, if they get sued for $5 million, they're not happy but they still have 35 million left. Take the average person who saves up a couple hundred thousand dollars over their lifetime, you know, if they get sued for a million dollars, it's catastrophic, they're totally wiped out. So I can even argue that the less you have, the more important the protection becomes. Well, you and I both live in Florida and I like to joke, although it's not a joke, 50% of the billboards are rented by personal injury attorneys. And in my experience, you know, I, I believe when I, because when I do financial planning with people, I believe that you have to deal with protection first because you can't change that stuff after, after a negative life event happens. So when you first look at auto insurance, in my experience, 80% of people do not have their auto insurance set up how I would say is optimal. And obviously that would mean an umbrella policy as well. And typically 
as you know, most companies cap out of 5 million, you can get more other places, but just little stuff like that. And I, I talk to people about it, like in Florida, tenants buy the entirety of accounts. I've had clients walk into banks and the bankers look at them like they're zombies, not having a clue what that means. And obviously there's probably 20 states that have tenants by the entireties, but uh, it's a different assets for the titling for, for different things. Florida, we have homestead, the protection and things like that. So talk a little bit about like the basics that no matter who you are and where you live, you should be doing. Sure. So first of all, why to do it, right? And you mentioned, right. oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's thousands of lawyers in every city trying to take your money, whether it's a billboard, a bus bench, a radio ad or TV ad. You know, there's thousands of lawyers in every city trying to take your money. I thought it would be pretty neat to be one of only a few lawyers in the whole country that actually teach you how to protect it. So, you know, people laugh, but I tell them I'm the lawyer that hates lawyers. So, <laughs> you know, it's a fun practice by any means. But what you're referring to is something that's called exemptions. And every state is different. Um, if you go to our website, it's www.assetprotectionattorneys.com. There's a button called Domestic Asset Protection. And under domestic asset protection, there's a button called financial planning exemptions. I only say that because we list everybody's state's exemptions and every exemption is different. So for example, in Florida, your retirement accounts are protected, your life insurance is protected, your house is protected, your annuities are protected. Now that might not be the case in every other state. In California, your retirement accounts are not protected. They're only protected to the extent that the court deems they're necessary and reasonable for support. In Georgia, your life insurance is not protected. So if you go on the website, you can just plug in your state and figure out what is and what's not protected in your state. But yeah, Florida is a great state to live if you want to be a debtor. Uh, that's why a lot of people move here You know, before they get sued, when they get sued, before there's a big judgment against them. There's other places too. Texas is a great place. But uh, in Florida, your home is protected, life insurance, annuities, retirement. They're all called exemptions. They're assets that are protected by state law. And again, every state is different. So you know you could check the website and plug in your state and see exactly what is protected, what's not, and to what extent. So what are some basics that you would say for someone who doesn't think they need this or they don't think they, they have enough, what, what are some basic things that everybody should do in your opinion? Sure. So there's a lot of different things that you could do. Um, and I kind of break it up maybe into three main categories. Number one is you can transfer your assets to a protective entity. So to me, that deals with own nothing, control everything. If you have money in your name and you get sued, you can lose it. If you have real estate in your name and you get sued, you can lose it. But if you transfer those assets to a protective entity, whether that be an LLC, a limited partnership, a trust, et cetera, there's ways that you can set up your assets and protective entities where if you get sued, you can't lose them. So that's probably number one of three. Um, number two of three is what we talked about, exemptions. Look in to see what's protected in your state. If you, leave in, if you live in Florida, buy a big expensive house because the house is protected. If you live in a state like Florida where your retirement accounts are protected, put a lot of money into your retirement accounts. If you live in a state where insurance and annuities are protected, invest in insurity, insurance and annuities. So check out the exemptions for your state and invest in exemptions because those are protective assets. And then lastly, I tell you equity strip. You know, poverty is power. What's a $100,000 Mercedes worth if you own 95,000? What's a million dollar house worth if you own 950,000? 
there's legal and ethical enforceable ways to put liens, mortgages, and encumbrances on your property, where if people go to sue you, there's no equity for the creditor to take. That's interesting. Now, in Florida, obviously, a single member LLC doesn't have liability protection. It's been it's been pierced, obviously. That's correct, right? Yeah. In June 2010, there was a Supreme Court case called Olmstead, not to be confused with Homestead. It was followed up by a case by Barber, which essentially states if you have a single member LLC and you own the LLC 100%, there's no protection. However, if you have a multi-member LLC, so maybe you own 99% and uh, somebody else owns 1%, that it is protected. Now, it's funny, right? Because we need to be 10 or 15 years ahead of our time. We need to figure out what are uh, the creditors going to try and do to get to our client's assets. So it's my belief, and I'm just guessing, that at some point there'll probably be another case in the future that talks about how little of an interest must someone own to make it a multi-member. Is it 1%, a half a percent, 5%? And on top of that, can it be a family member? Can it be a friend? How close can they be? So I don't think that the court history or case law is over. I think it'll continue to evolve as we go on. Yeah, I've had high net worth clients who uh, they've had multiple marriages. So they had separate accounts and they had uh, deaths well over seven figures in in accounts. And I, and I was like, you know, you could go tenants by the entireties here, but, you know, you're going to give your wife more power here or you could do a multi-member LLC, 99%, 1% and protect the account and feel like you own more of the account. And they chose the, the multi-member LLC, which I think was the right choice in their scenario. So, you know, people and here you can, ask- and you, can layer, and you can layer that, right? I mean, you can have a multi-member LLC that's own tendency by entirety. So it's not even one or the other. So, well, that actually brings up a great point. So talk about, I've heard from some, from some attorneys there, it's not really established very much with case law, but it is a thing. A tenants by the entirety trust. Is that so, real? You know, first of all, you need to understand that there's really two types of trusts. There's revocable trusts and there's irrevocable trusts. Those are really almost every trust will boil down to a revocable trust or an irrevocable trust. So Would stop right be- there real quick. Stop right there. So because a lot of people have revocable trusts. Is it accurate to say really the only purpose of a revocable trust is to avoid probate? You are correct. Um, It's probably the biggest misconception I see on a daily basis. People walk into my office, they have a revocable living trust, they think they're protected. It gives them 0% asset protection. Anything in your revocable trust is no different than being in your personal name. A revocable trust is great because when you die, you can avoid probate, your assets can go where you want them to go quicker, privately, hopefully less lawyer fees, less legal fees, less taxes but probably one of the biggest misconceptions in all of asset protection history is that people actually think a revocable trust will protect them and it gives them 0% protection. Yeah, that's interesting. So I cut you off though. Carry on with what you were saying before. Yeah, what I was saying is it's funny because people call my office every day and they say, have you heard of this uh, XXXYZ trust? And I say, of course I have not heard of it because your lawyer made up the name. So my point <laughs> is that you know, there's two types of trusts. There's revocable trusts and there's irrevocable trusts. And then there's about 200 other trusts that people talk about because a lawyer comes up with a cool, fun, sexy name to kind of make it their own trust. So a tenancy by an entirety trust, to be honest with you, I don't know what that means. If you showed right. me the paperwork, I could tell you in 10 seconds, but it's probably some sort of a revocable or irrevocable trust. 
Well, so let's talk real quick. A kind of hot topic is the Domestic Asset Protection Trust. And I know a lot of people are promoting those as being you know, really, really good. I don't know the ins and outs of them, but can you speak to them? Sure. So I don't personally love them um, for a few reasons. The DAPT started in about five states, went to 10. Now they're probably over 20 states. And some of the reasons why I don't love them, and I'm not saying they're not better than nothing, um, you know, we all have different tools that we choose to use on a daily basis. But number one, I don't like that they're new. So I like established law. I don't ever want my client to be a guinea pig. And we're learning things where some of those trusts are blowing up and they may not be working. And, and I don't want that to happen to one of my clients. That's number one. Um, number two is, you know, it may be good for someone who lives in one of those states. So let's just pretend that, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, Wyoming has a DAPT law. Well, if you live in Wyoming, you work in Wyoming, and you own real estate in Wyoming, it may work for you. But what happens if you live in Florida, you own real estate in New York, and you work in Georgia, but you set up a Wyoming trust? You know, which law applies? Is it where you live? Is it where the asset is? Is it where you set up the trust? I bet you get those three or four judges in a room, and they'll beg to differ. And then also, the DAPT law is state law. And most people know that federal law obviously trumps state law. And there's a federal law called the full faith and credit clause. And what that means, if somebody gets a judgment against you in one state, it's good in all the other states. So if somebody sues you and gets a judgment against you in Florida, they can then go domesticate that uh, judgment in New York. So the DAPT law is a state law. And I would argue if somebody can then remove the case to federal court, you may have issues with the DAPT state law where federal law may trump it. That's interesting because I've heard that Wyoming has the best charging order protection for an LLC. So you should have an LLC in Wyoming. But if you live in Florida, you work in Florida and all your assets in Florida, that doesn't sound like that would stand up to the test of the courts. Yeah. And depending what you're doing, right? I mean, if you're a dentist and you have a Wyoming LLC uh, and you operate in a dental office in Florida, well, you're supposed to then license that Wyoming LLC in Florida and then you're subject to the laws of Florida anyway. So you might as well just had a Florida LLC. Well, exactly. So a lot of people, I mean, if someone's got $20 million, they know they need to do this type of planning. But for someone who has a million, two million, three million, four million, in my experience, they've done none of this. And we'll talk about estate planning here in a second. And those people, most of them don't realize that they have a target on their back from a estate planning standpoint. But I mean, everyone should have max auto liability limits. Everyone should have an umbrella policy. Everyone should have their accounts tenants by the entireties if they live in Florida or the, the similar things in different states. But like, who are the type of per people who should be talking to an asset protection attorney? Like, what's the net worth and income range? Sure. So we work with clients of any size whether it's uh, someone who has $20,000, $30,000 in the bank, whether it's someone who does $7 billion a year with a B. Um, I don't care how poor someone is. I don't care how rich someone is. You know, Whatever someone has, that means a lot to them. So I don't care how little or how much you have or you think you have. It always ends up being worse if you lose the little that you do have. So every single person needs asset protection. You know, The majority of our clients end up being business owners, you know, because they're in, in the spotlight every day, they're dealing with the litigation. But, you know, a, a husband or wife could just as easily get in a car accident, taking the kids to soccer practice. God forbid someone slips and falls on the property, drowns in the pool. I mean, you name the lawsuit, I've seen it. So really, every single person needs asset protection, obviously not to the same degree. You know, someone who has $40,000 in their account, maybe they just use a very, very simple, you know, asset protection LLC, 
where maybe someone who has $40 million is using comprehensive limited partnerships that own LLCs that are owned by international trusts that we've equity stripped all the equity out of the assets and so on and so forth. So everybody needs it, but again, to different degrees. There's an attorney, pretty prominent attorney, who says he's for the people. And I like to say to people, he's for the people, but he's not for you. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously, you know who I'm referring to there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about estate planning. You know, the estate exemption is roughly $23 million. It's going to sunset immediately in about four years or four or five years. Politically, it's probably going to go away sooner. At least that's what everyone speculates. It appears the momentum is kind of lost on what we thought was going to happen this year, but it's going to drop to probably 11 million automatically, but politically it could easily drop to six or seven. And people don't realize that, you know, when you have a $23 million exemption, that kind of takes a lot of people off the table. But, you know, in their proposed Bernie, I believe it was Bernie Sanders who proposed the legislation. I heard one guy say, basically, he had a mole. Bernie must have had a mole in the estate planning world and basically took every single, virtually every single strategy that was used off the table. Talk a little bit about the potential for something like that and what people really need to be preparing for. Sure. Well, first of all, the differences between asset protection and estate planning, just to be clear, asset protection deals with life, estate planning deals with death. So asset protection is how to protect what you have from everyone, every time while you're alive. Estate planning deals with when you pass, how do you get the assets to go where you want them to go quickly, privately, and the least amount of lawyer fees and taxes that are legally and ethically possible. So talking about estate planning from a tax point of view that you brought up, you know, to me, you know, a lot of these estate planning attorneys, in my mind, are not giving good advice because they're saying, oh, you don't need to do something because you're, you know, below the exemption. Well, the problem is, just like you said, we don't know what the exemption will be in five years. We don't know what the exemption will be in 10 years. We don't know what the exemption will be in 15 years. We don't what know- What was it 20 years ago? It was yeah. 600,000 per person 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and forget that. We don't know how much we're gonna have when we're gonna die. And we don't know when we're gonna die. So right. if we knew all these things, maybe it would be a little easier. But I tell my clan, my clients, you know, essentially, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. I don't care how little you have, presume that you're going to have an estate tax issue. If you don't, uh, what'd you lose? Maybe you set up a trust for, for a very, very small amount of money. No big deal. You know, if you didn't, you know, you could have saved millions and millions of dollars. So again, nobody knows what the future will hold. I'm conservative. I like to play it safe. I like to presume everyone could have an issue. Who better to tax than dead people? Uh, they don't complain. In most states, they don't vote. Uh, so, you know. So what I've seen from a boilerplate estate planning standpoint is, you know, you have the typical testimony trust set up for the kids and usually says boilerplate, a third of the money goes to the kids at 25, a third of the money at 30, a third of the money at 35. Now I have a fundamental problem with that. I think it's way too young for lots of reasons I won't go into here, but I also have a problem with giving the kids the money versus having them be the own trustee of their trust to protect it from divorce and creditors from an asset protection standpoint. I, I love what you're saying because no trust, with the exception of some you know, income from you know, tax laws that you have to do, but no trust should ever have a mandatory distribution ever. Because if someone gets a third when they're 30, what if they're going through a divorce? Now their ex-spouse gets half. 
If somebody gets a third when they're 40, what happens if they're being sued for a car accident? So in all my trusts, I never have any mandatory distributions at all. I always use the words shall consider. I don't care if you put the trustee shall consider giving them a third at their 30. If they want to, they can, but they don't have to. And when no matter what they give them, it should never go to them outright. It should go into some trust for them or some entity for them, not into their personal name where it's uh, unprotected. So that's kind of the integration. I love that you brought that up because most estate planning attorneys just do estate planning and they don't think about anything else. But you need to have what I'd call an integrated plan. So you need to be thinking estate planning. You need to be thinking tax planning. You need to be thinking asset protection planning. You need to be thinking business succession planning. You need to be thinking financial planning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you leave any of those ones out, you're leaving a lot of chips on the table. Now, that's that's a really good point right there. So let's kind of pivot back to uh, asset protection. So I work with a lot of dentists and dentists typically wear scrubs to work. And I like to say these uh, these little phones we carry around, they ring, ding, and buzz all the time. And we all know we're not supposed to look at them while we're driving, but everyone does. And so if you are looking at your phone and then you rear in somebody, heaven forbid they're actually hurt or hurt bad, you know, you could be a dentist making whatever, but they immediately, when you wear scrubs, think you make seven-figure minimum, what I like to call neurosurgeon money. And so you are really in a pickle from a legal standpoint here. And so yeah, and, and it's worse than that because, you know, first of all, perception is reality. So if you're a dentist or if you're a doctor, you are super, super rich. You may not be, but in everyone else's mind, you are super, super rich because you're a doctor, you're a dentist. And take the example that you just gave. There may be an insurance company that won't cover you because the insurance companies will give you about a page or two of what's covered and then 50 pages of exclusions. And my dad used to say growing up, he'd say, son, the big print giveth, the small print taketh away. <laughs> the, companies, the first thing they do when you get in an accident is they check, were you on your phone, calling, texting, and driving? And there may be an exclusion for that. Well, and if it's a state law that you can't tech, you can't use your phone while driving, then because you're in violation of law, they would say it's not covered. <laughs> Gotta love the insurance companies. When I come back, I want to be in insurance companies. I think they're the most profitable industry in the world. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so funny. Some of them definitely earn their reputation as uh, as being trying not to pay claims. It can be a little frustrating for sure. So what are some, you know, like I've had some clients sell their practice for $10 million or more. Um, and so when you deal with someone who probably has several million dollars in net worth, you know, maybe $5 million to $1.5 million of income, but then all of a sudden they sell their practice for, you know, maybe $10, $12, $15 million, which is becoming more and more these days. All of a sudden they're now kind of in a different stratosphere, whether they actually realize it or not, they're now pushing, you know, 15, 20, maybe even $25 million in net worth. And people like that talk about like, because most of those people have done nothing of what you said, um, just because that's just how life is. Just like most clients don't have their wills drafted or any of that stuff just because it's inconvenient. So, I mean, talk about how big of a deal it is to have this stuff done and how urgent it is. Well, it's important and it's an urgent. I'll tell you why. And this may be a surprise to you. Probably the biggest lawsuit I see is after somebody sells the business. 
So people think they have no more liability because they sold their business. That's the biggest lawsuit I see. Here's what happens. New owner comes in. Nobody ever runs it like you. Income goes down. Expenses go up. Two to three years later, whoever the buyer was turns around and sues you for fraud. I like to call it renegotiation. So the minute, <laughs> the, minute the second I have a client that sells their business in any field, I always tell them, put together a comprehensive asset protection plan, take those chips off the table, forget anything else. If that buyer comes back with buyer's remorse, I want those sales proceeds off the table. Yeah, that's a big deal. So like if you have, like when you own an asset, obviously like if you own a rental property, every single rental property needs to be in an entity, not in your individual name. Would you agree with that? Only if you want to keep it. You know, when it, <laughs> when it comes to real estate, there's two things you want to think about. If the real estate's in your name and you get sued, you can lose it. If the real estate's properly in an entity and you get sued, you can't lose it. But also if the real estate's in your name and somebody gets injured on the property, maybe the renter throws a New Year's party. If you own it, you can get sued. If it's owned by the entity, only the entity can get sued. So the two reasons you always want to put real estate in an entity is number one, protect the real estate itself, but number two, protect you from being sued if somebody gets injured on the property. So what do you think about someone buying it in their personal name because financing is more favorable for an individual than an entity and then they quit claim it over? Technically, you could trigger the due on sale clause, but you never do. Are you okay with that typically? Yeah. Look, am I okay with it? Yes. Is it better than nothing? Yes. Is that what the majority of people do? Yes. Uh, listen, I'd love for people to do it correctly from the beginning, which is purchase it in an entity from 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 the day they purchase it. But but yes, you know, I tell people I'm like a card player and it's probably a bad analogy because I don't know how to play cards, but they're the dealer. So they deal me all these facts and then I got to find the least expensive way, but the most protective way to protect all their assets. And normally it's taking real estate out of their personal name that should have been in entities from the beginning and, and fixing them up. So if, if someone owns 10 rentals, this is an easy example. Should they have 10 entities or should they have one entity with 10 rentals in it or should they have two entities? What would you recommend? The answer is it depends. And I'm not trying to be vague, right? So, you know, if you have 10 pieces of real estate and they're all worth a half a million bucks, I want them in 10 entities all day long. You know, if you have 10 pieces of vacant land and they're worth 20,000 each, I don't really mind if you shove all 10 in one entity. So to me, it's always cost benefit analysis. The more entities, the better. If you can segregate uh, the properties, one property per entity, the better. Uh, keep your winners safe from losers. Keep your eggs in different baskets. But again, if the property is only worth a little bit amount of money, I don't mind if we combine properties. So regarding umbrella policies, what is your uh, you know mathematical formula for the appropriate amount of coverage? Obviously, most insurance companies kind of cap out of 5 million. You got to go to someone like Chubb or someone else to get over 5 million, but it's easy to do. I've known people with $60 million with a $25,000 premium on, on liability coverage, but that person was worth tens of millions of dollars. What, what's your kind of formula for the, the appropriate amount? Yeah. So uh, first of all, look, it totally depends, right? Because it depends on the asset value. Somebody has $300,000. I mean, for them to have a million dollar umbrella is you know, way beyond probably even what they need. If somebody has uh, $200 million in assets, they probably want more than a $1 million umbrella. So the answer is it depends what you have. However, what I like to look at it is there's a reason why these umbrella policies are so cheap. Maybe it's a couple thousand bucks for 5 million bucks or whatever it may be. But the reason is, is that the statistics of them actually paying off are very low. 
So I don't even call them umbrella policies. I don't even call insurance insurance policies because in my mind, I have an asset protection plan. So I want to be uncollectible and I want to be judgment proof no matter what. The word I use for my umbrella policy and the word I use for my insurance policy is I call it my legal defense fund. Because one thing it normally does is pay the attorneys. So depending on the level of asset you have, when you're buying an umbrella policy, yes, the more the better, and it's great, because if the insurance policy actually does happen to pay, that'll help you. But you certainly want enough there that'll cover all litigation. Now, again, depending on what you have, you know, litigation could be 50000 100000 200000 I've seen people walk into my office who've spent $10 million in litigation before they step foot in my office. So at a minimum, you want that umbrella to be able to cover a maximum amount of what the lawyers would charge you. Because if you pay $10 million in lawyer fees, I had another client who just walked in who paid $800,000 in lawyer fees, you've already lost your case. Even if you win, you've lost. That's funny because basically you're like, well, you're almost saying if you do enough asset protection, you don't need an umbrella policy except basically get the insurance company to pay your legal fees for you. Correct. So last question here, garnishment of wages. My understanding is that can happen in Florida in certain situations, and obviously every state's different. How big of a risk is that? Look, it's always a risk. I mean, um, I think federally, the most someone can ever garnish is about 25% of the wages. And I haven't looked about it in a while. I don't know if they've changed it, but, but that sounds about right. Um, there's some exemptions like in Florida, they don't garnish your wages if you know, you're the head of the household, you're supporting other people, uh, you have dependents, so things of that nature. But yeah, look, people can garnish your wages, but there's ways around it, right? You, know, you can garnish my wage, but if I own, let's just pretend an entity, an LLC, a consulting company, you know, if the wage doesn't get paid to me and the money gets paid to the LLC, well, now the money's safe in the LLC. Now, of course, if I take the money out of the LLC, you know, then maybe it's in my name and someone could take it, but maybe you leave the money in the LLC. Maybe then you buy assets through the LLC. So again, there's a lot of different, you know, tricks of the trade that you can use to make sure that they don't garnish your wages. Well, I could literally interrogate you or depose you to use a lawyer term for the next 30 minutes, ask you questions. I find this fascinating, but we're really out of time here. But I, I want to tell people how they can get in touch with you and what you could you'll provide them if they if, if they're interested. Sure. If they go to our website, it's www.assetprotectionattorneys.com. That's www.assetprotectionattorneys.com. As long as they mention your show, I'm happy to send them out complimentary copies of the latest books that we authored on asset protection. Um, If they'd like a complimentary preliminary consultation, again, if they're coming from your show, I'm happy to do it. Whatever we can do to help uh, your listeners, we're here to help. Uh, Our biggest thing is we like to educate people. Like you said at the beginning of the interview, there's thousands of lawyers, you know, in every city trying to make your money, take your money, excuse me. Uh, You know, there's very few people like us in the whole country teaching you how to protect it. And unfortunately, people don't realize and know that until it's too late. So the best thing someone can do is educate themselves. And again, uh, go to our website. It's www.assetprotectionattorneys.com. Mention your show. We'll send them complimentary copies of the last few books I authored on asset protection. Um, if they'd like, we'll give them a complimentary preliminary consultation as long as they mention you. Hello, thanks so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brennan. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan. 
guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit rossbrannan.com. Registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0L10073. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. 2021-1195-35. Expires 423. That last part can also say 2021 119535 expiration April 2023. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding individual situations. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664, Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311-850-562-9075. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRASIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. California Insurance License Number 0L10073-2021-125890-8075. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.